Good evening on this week's programme, 70 years on, reflections on the first summit of Mount Everest in 1953. Could we climb Everest? Did we have the technical capability? Would we remain conscious at that incredible altitude? And of course, when Hillary and Tanzing made it, they showed that we humans could do it. We'll hear from Peter Hillary, son of Edmund Hillary, on the significance of his father's historic climb. Plus, life and death at sea during the Great Irish Famine. It's the ingenuity, it's the bravery of these folks that's just been lost for years behind the, the cardboard cutout, as I call it, of the coffin ship. Keen McMahon on his book The Coffin Ship, which reveals the reality of Irish emigrants' voyages during the famine years. And to begin this evening, Irish barristers, how the profession has changed and evolved in the century since independence. Barristers have played a significant role in Irish public life in the 20th century as lawmakers, politicians, civil servants, broadcasters, judges, academics and social reformers. A new book from Four Courts Press examines the profession from the turbulent 1920s right up until the Celtic Tiger years. It's called Barristers in Ireland, an evolving profession since 1921. It looks at who the barristers were, how they worked and how they were perceived. It also examines the impact of partition, the experiences of women at the bar, and traces how the profession changed over the course of the 20th century. The author is Dr. Neve Howland, Associate Professor at the UCD Sutherland School of Law. And Neve joins me now. You're very welcome back to The History Show. Thank you. Um, You pick 1921 as the starting point for the book, the year the War of Independence ends in a truce, the year the Anglo-Irish Treaty is negotiated. Would the barristers called to the bar in an independent Ireland have been involved in the dull course system which preceded the Anglo-Irish Treaty, the courts essentially set up to replace the British legal system. There would have been some barristers involved in the Dole Courts, um, but not very many. Most of the lawyers who worked in the Dole Courts would have been solicitors rather than barristers, but some barristers were involved and people like James Creed Meredith, for example, or Cahar Davitt, were later appointed to the superior courts that were set up after 1924. But I think I would assume that barristers would have been having quite a hard time if they weren't accessing the dull courts because a lot of the litigation had transferred from the British system to the Sinn Féin system, to the dull system. Yeah, so we, we've got reports of the assizes where very few cases were being brought because everything was being dealt with in the alternative courts, in the dull courts. So, yeah, I think business was quite slow for a lot of barristers uh, around 1920, 1921. And what part, what role did they play in cementing the rule of law in the the new state? Because one of the first things that has to happen is that a new constitution has to be established. So you have a committee meeting, well, effectively chaired by Daryl Figgis. Uh, did, uh, did barristers play an active part on that committee? They certainly did. Um, so half of the people on that committee were barristers, And even the secretariat who supported the committee were also qualified barristers. So you can really see that, you know, having barristers or having lawyers involved in drafting a new constitution for the new state really lended an air of legitimacy, I would say, to the 1922 constitution. Then the following year in 1923, another committee was established to set up a new system of courts. 
And that had quite a lot of representation from barristers as well. And that resulted in the Courts Act 1924, which of course set up the courts that we have today. Um, So barristers played a really important role in the establishment of the new state in the 20s. How did you become a barrister back in 1921? Was it very different? Was it any different to how it is today? Probably not that different. So in order to qualify as a barrister, you had to complete a two-year course at the King's Inns, which is in Dublin on Constitution Hill. And then once you'd completed that, you were awarded the degree of barrister at law and you were called to the bar, which was really a special ceremony in the Supreme Court where the Chief Justice would call the name of each newly qualified barrister in turn. And from that point on, they were entitled to practice at the bar. Now, one of the reasons why you picked 1921 in particular, because this was the the first year in which women, two women, were actually called to the, to the bar. And uh, surprisingly, we were ahead of the, well, because it was then, the rest of the United Kingdom in, in that regard. We certainly were. Um, so the Sex Disqualification Removal Act was passed in 1919 um, and that removed the last legal barrier for women qualifying as lawyers. So the first two women barristers qualified in Ireland in 1921, Avril Deverell and Frances Kyle, a little bit ahead of the first barristers in England. In the last year or so, there have been quite a few um, commemorations of the first women barristers and the legal profession has really reflected on and marked the the achievements of those women. But there was no rush of women to join the bar from 1921 onwards, was there? No, surprisingly not. Um, So in the years following, really only a couple of women a year chose to qualify as barristers. Out of how many who would have been called to the bar at that stage? So there would have been an average 24, 25 people a year qualifying and maybe an average of one to two women out of that. So five to 10% every year, basically. Very low. Some years there were no women. It really wasn't until the 1970s, so 50 years later, that there was a big, a sharp increase in the number of women qualifying as barristers. That suggests to me that women were looking at what was going on in the law courts and were saying, "Mm, no, it's too difficult to make a living as a female barrister. Would that have been the case? That could have been part of it. There were certainly women who qualified and who later left to do other things. A lot of women would have left when they got married or decided to become solicitors instead because barristers were self-employed and that was quite difficult for many people. Whereas if you worked in a solicitor's firm, you had a little bit more security and I suppose you had more colleagues and you had more people to work with. You might have had a pension, in other words. You might even have had a pension. (laughs) Certainly wouldn't have had a pension as a a barrister. Um, When it came to women taking silks or becoming senior counsel, pretty spotty record, really, up until the 1990s, as what I got from the book. Yeah, the first women didn't take silk or didn't become senior counsel or senior barristers until many, many years after women qualified for the bar. The first woman to take silk was Mella Carroll, who was later appointed as a judge. But up until the 90s, really, it was very, very rare for for women to be appointed as senior counsel. Let's backtrack a little bit and go back to 1922 and the, the burning of the four courts. Obviously, the law library goes with it. What was the impact of that on the profession? I think the impact of the destruction of the four courts was was pretty severe on barristers. So, first of all, they'd lost their workplace. So they all worked out of this communal space called the law library in the four courts, and that was completely destroyed. 
they, of course, lost all of the books and the legislation and the cases, all the tools that they needed to actually be able to to do their jobs. And they'd also lost their wigs and their gowns, which were stored in the law library. So they didn't even have the clothes that they needed to wear for their work. And I think also there has to have been an impact on morale, you know, to to lose your workplace and all the things you need to do your job um, so suddenly. So that was quite severe. Where did they move to? What I mean, because obviously the, the the law library was completely uninhabitable for a number of years until the four courts was rebuilt. It was uninhabitable, but it was so important that the machinery of justice would continue to to operate. So the law library and the courts operated out of the King's Inns on Constitution Hill for about six months. It was quite cramped. I don't think the conditions were ideal. And then in 1923, they moved to a temporary law library that was opened up in St. Patrick's Hall in Dublin Castle. The symbolism of that is interesting. Very interesting. So the courts sat in Dublin Castle for the first six or seven years of the existence of the state. And then everybody moved back to the four courts when it was rebuilt and refurbished in the 30s. Uh, something else that happens in 1921, obviously, is what it has effectively had happened, I suppose, with the Government of Ireland Act the previous year, and that's partition. In the context, of a partition. What happens to the, league, the Irish legal profession? So initially, not a lot changed because it was one legal profession. It was one bar for the whole island. As time went on, it became apparent that it was going to be quite difficult to, to run this in practice. So all barristers still qualified in the King's Inns, but the King's Inns essentially opened up a, a Belfast branch. So they had a professor giving lectures in Belfast and they had a library in Belfast. Um, so people who were in no- the new state of Northern Ireland could you know, do their legal training in Belfast, but they were still called to the bar in both jurisdictions. As the 20s progressed, the relationship between the Southern Committee of the King's Inns and the Northern Committee grew quite difficult. The laws in both jurisdictions were changing and moving in quite different directions. So there was legislation being passed and that was making it quite difficult for someone to practice in both jurisdictions. So really from the 20s up until the 70s, there wasn't a very close relationship between barristers in the north and barristers in the south. You couldn't practice automatically in the courts of Northern Ireland if you qualified down here, for example. And then what happens during the Troubles? During the Troubles, I think efforts were made by individuals who were senior members of the, of the judiciaries in both states to try and recreate links between the North and the South. Some of this was done informally through, you know, socialising, um, having golf matches and things like that. But very, very tentatively, things started to, to improve. And I suppose one of the difficulties in the 1920s would have been posed by the first Chief Justice, Hugh Kennedy, who had been also Attorney Attorney General in the Free State Government. And uh, that was his enthusiasm for the Irish language. Mm-hmm. So he was um, a very committed um, Irish language enthusiast. And he had a vision that in this new state, all practising lawyers would be able to conduct cases through the Irish language. Now, it was some years before steps were taken um, to have any provision for the Irish language in the courts. But his ideal was that everyone should be able to do this. And this really wasn't something that the Northern Ireland uh, barristers were particularly keen on. I think there was also 
some resentment, was there not, in Northern Ireland to uh, people who were being called to the bar in the Irish Free State, who perhaps Northern barristers would not have viewed as being uh, properly qualified. One of the prime examples being the Minister for Justice, Kevin O'Higgins. Yeah, that's right. So during World War One, certain barristers were given exemptions from their King's Inns examinations on the basis of their military service. So they could sort of skip ahead on that basis. And in the early 1920s, there were still individuals being granted these exemptions. So they were being allowed to qualify as barristers without necessarily having done the full course and taken all the exams. And this became something that did irritate the northern benchers and the northern um, members of the bar. And then when the decision was made to grant Kevin O'Higgins an exemption, I suppose it was not quite he, the straw. He was a qualified solicitor. He was a qualified solicitor and, you know, extremely, extremely well qualified and very experienced, but hadn't, you know, done any of the qualifications to become a barrister. Now, you're also interested in how barristers were perceived or have been perceived or were perceived in this case in the in the 20th century. I think perhaps the perceptions, perceptions haven't changed all that much. Um, how do you think they're perceived? Do you think that they don't get a fair quack of the whip? So I think if we look back to the first half of the 20th century, I think like most professions in Ireland at that time, I I do think they were perceived with a lot of respect and they were seen maybe as being a bit elitist, maybe being not very representative of the wider society. Um, And people may have been a bit intimidated by, by barristers and there weren't very many of them at that stage. As time went on, I think probably the public perceptions of the bar were less positive. For example, there were a few things in the 1980s that probably brought the whole system of justice into disrepute. So, you know, things that we're still talking about today. So if we think about the Kerry Babies case, the Stardust inquest and issues like that, they probably didn't reflect very well on the Gardaí, the judiciary and the legal profession, not necessarily barristers specifically. And then I think in the 1990s, when very large, expensive tribunals were running and people perceived that there were very hefty fees being earned um, by people at that. I think that had a very negative impact on public perceptions too. You mentioned numbers and that's, you know, in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, there would not have been that many barristers. In one of your chapters, I think it's chapter five, you have uh, you have a graph <laughs> and it's it's very, very notable. There's a huge leap in numbers of barristers in the 1980s. What accounts for that? I think the numbers of people qualifying for the bar would generally have been impacted by the general uh, economic situation in the country. There were no, there wasn't a cap on numbers, so it was probably easier to get into this profession than it was to get into other professions. Not necessarily easier to, to be successful and to make a good living. You paint a very broad picture of the profession. You look at how barristers contributed to, to public life outside of, of litigation. Just give me a few examples of that. Well, there were quite a number of barristers who were involved with writing plays, performing plays, writing for TV and so on. One barrister who had quite a lot of involvement with RTE was Liam Diwali. So he hosted a lot of TV shows in the 60s and 70s and radio programmes and would have been a bit of a household name. One example was that he provided the commentary on the Eurovision Song Contest in 1979, and he was five years a barrister at that point. Another example would be um, Owen the Pope O'Mahony, 
who was a genealogist as well as being a barrister. And he had a genealogical show on RTE called Meet the Clans, which was a prime Sunday afternoon slot, I believe. Uh, and people like Dennis Johnson, for example. Uh, yeah. Not somebody you necessarily would associate with RTE, but you were certainly associated with the BBC. I was just surprised to discover that he was a barrister. Yeah, he practised for, for, for quite a number of years. He managed to, to combine practising at the bar and working in theatre for a number of years. Um, but then I think the theatre was the stronger draw for him. Looking back at some of the plays that he wrote for the stage and that he later wrote for, for BBC television, some of them were very clearly inspired by either his own work as a barrister or by famous 19th century cases. So he has a TV show written about the murder at Newtown Stewart, which was a very infamous case where a police inspector was hanged for murder. Um, he also wrote a play about the um, the Kerwin murder on Ireland's Eye. So whether he carried out this research himself or whether this, these were stories that were passed down through the law at the bar, I'm not sure. Um, also, of course, a very distinguished war correspondent for the for the BBC. So another another string to Dennis Johnson's bow. Absolutely. One thing that comes across in the book is that it can be a lonely profession. Yeah, this is something that came out in some of the interviews that I carried out with barristers. So there's a great emphasis on camaraderie at the bar. It's a communal workspace. Everybody's in there together. People socialise together and so on. But paradoxically, it it can be quite um, an isolated experience because everybody is self-employed, working for themselves. And no two practices were the same. No two barristers had the exact same experiences. So it did come out in the conversations that people did find a certain loneliness or a certain isolation but that um, this wasn't necessarily something that was talked about. Um, Now, barristers are noted for their distinctive attire, or at least they were noted for their distinctive attire. Where does that all come from? Where does the notion of the wigs and the gowns begin? So the wigs um, really date back to the 17th and 18th centuries. So when wigs were in fashion generally amongst the nobility and amongst the aristocracy in France and England, They were also worn by members of the legal profession. And when fashions moved on elsewhere, the legal profession kept the wigs. So when we look back to the 1920s, wigs were compulsory attire um, for barristers in court. And that didn't disappear until the 1990s. There would have been, I suppose, an opportunity with the burning down of the forecourts and the destruction of all those wigs and all those gowns to get rid of that and to establish a system which was very distinct from the from the British system. But that opportunity was not availed of. It wasn't. Um, there certainly was a period where barristers had to appear without their wigs and without their gowns because everything had been destroyed. But people were very eager to get back to a certain sense of normality. I suppose there had been so many changes. This maybe would have been one change too many. Um, How have the practices of being called to the bar and then devilling, so essentially becoming an apprentice barrister, how have they changed since the 1920s, do you know? Devilling has changed quite a bit. So devilling is um, where somebody works sort of as an apprentice Mm. um, for a more senior barrister, usually for their first year or so. And at this stage, it's a compulsory part of the qualification process. Everybody devils for at least a year. Most people now devil for two years. In the 1920s, it was optional. So you didn't have to devil. And if you deviled for someone, you often had to pay them for the privilege. These days, 
the people who do the devilling get paid. But back then it was considered to be um, a, a privilege and an honour to get to follow somebody around and read their cases and get their advice. What also, what lay behind the, the rather Masonic mystery of taking silk, of becoming a senior counsel? And how has that changed over the years, if at all? So the, the phrase taking silk refers to the fact that um, the more senior members of the bar, the senior barristers, wear a black gown that's made from silk as opposed to the rougher material that the junior barristers wear. The process has changed quite a bit. It used to be a fairly informal thing that you would maybe just write a very short letter to the Attorney General, to the Chief Justice and say, this is something I would like to do. And they would say yes or no. Um, whereas now it's a much more formalised procedure and there's a committee and there are various things that you need to show. And uh, finally, who was at the bar? You know, who, who are the country's barristers? How has that changed since, since 19, 1921? I think early on in the book you described the kind of the typical barrister in 1921 was male, Protestant and from Dublin. Yeah. That's changed, hasn't it? That definitely changed. It's changed now. And even by the end of the 1990s, which is the end of my period that I write about, it had changed quite a bit. I mean, we can see that the membership of the profession broadened out over that sort of 70, 80 year period. We had you know, greater number of women being called to the bar. So by the 1990s, 40 percent of those called to the bar were women, as opposed to the, the tiny numbers early on. The introduction of things like free secondary education and free university fees opened out the, I suppose, the socioeconomic background of people who joined the bar. We had not very much ethnic diversity. There were often people from other countries who qualified as barristers here, studied in the King's Inns, but usually went back to their own countries to work afterwards. So there wasn't much ethnic diversity at the bar in the 20th century. One thing that came out quite a bit in the interviews was that the bar was generally seen as a fairly tolerant place for eccentricities. So people who were maybe a little bit different or who may not have thrived in a more structured work environment. It also came out in the interviews that the bar was maybe a little bit more tolerant of homosexuality than other workplaces would have been in the 20th century. And finally, is it a bit more democratic by 1999 or is it impossible to squeeze bar and democracy into the same sentence? Well, the Bar Council, which is the regulatory and representative body that represents the profession, were democratically elected. So I suppose we've got internal democracy in that sense. Neve Howland, thank you very, very much indeed for joining us. The book is called Barristers in Ireland, an evolving profession since 1921. The author is my guest, Dr Neve Howland, and uh, many thanks again for joining us this evening, Neve. Thank you. After the break, we'll hear from Peter Hillary, son of Edmund Hillary, on his father's ascent of Everest 70 years ago. Stay with us. Welcome back. It's been 70 years since Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary reached the summit of Mount Everest, the first climbers confirmed to have done so. In this report, Mark McMenamin speaks to author and mountaineer Peter Hillary about the significance of that climb. Mount Everest, May 29th, 1953. On the morning of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, the ninth expedition to attempt to reach the summit of the Great Mountain 
finally succeeds. This is Peter Hillary, son of Sir Edmund Hillary, who alongside Sherpa Tenzing Norgay were the first people to stand upon the roof of the world. It was one of those big events that really liberated every single one of us. But I mean, of course, one of the wonderful things about 1953, there was Europe at the end of the Second World War, a very damaged place after the appalling fighting that had gone on over those previous seven years. And the message, of course, in those days took a long time to get out, took five days to get from my father in Tenzing to the team to be relayed down to the British Embassy in Kathmandu. Since the first attempt to reach the summit of Everest in 1921, there had been eight successive attempts, each getting close but failing to reach the summit. It comes as no surprise as Mount Everest is rife with danger. Mount Everest is a big, difficult and dangerous mountain. If you fall, you will die. You're not just going to slide off down a slope. You will die. You'll be flying through the air at terminal velocity, occasionally hitting the ice. You will disappear. The storms are legendary. Jet stream storms of 100 knots, 200 knots, 300 knots. This will just blow people away. So you've got to make sure that you're in the right place at the right time. It's a severe place. But at the end of the day, it's also a wondrous place. The fact that many people died trying to reach the summit was very much in the mind of Peter's father, Sir Edmund Hillary, in 1953. Here he is speaking in 1977. I think my first reaction wasn't perhaps uh, what a lot of people would think. There was no sort of ecstatic sort of feeling at all as far as I was concerned. There was certainly a a deep and quiet satisfaction. But I also, I know, had um, a feeling of almost surprise. Uh, I was really surprised that, well, here was old Ed Hillary on top of Everest, you know. It was almost hard to believe. The fact that so many people had tried before, and some very good people had been too, and that finally uh, here there was me actually uh, standing on top of the mountain. I can remember this, this feeling of slight astonishment, actually. Peter believes his father's drive and ambition led him to being selected for the 1953 expedition. He was an an extraordinary guy. He was a a very bright operator. I mean, as a child, they thought he was a bit of a genius and sent him off to secondary school two years younger than everyone else, where I guess he discovered he wasn't a genius, but he was just a capable guy. But his love was mountaineering. And he went on a lot of expeditions, climbing big mountains in New Zealand, going to Europe, and importantly, going to the Himalayas on a number of Himalayan expeditions before the successful 1953 Everest expedition. I think what really made him stand out was his experience, his drive. I mean, he had an incredible drive, a lot of ambition. That's very much the sort of man he was, but he was a very generous guy. He loved the company of others. He, of course, ended up dedicating about 50 years of his life to building schools and hospitals for the local high-altitude villages around the foot of Mount Everest. Peter 
like his father, has also summited Mount Everest. The altitude at 8,000 metres above sea level can be brutal. It's something that Peter had to show great resilience in dealing with on his own summit attempt. In many ways, it was a wonderful thing because I'd heard stories about it. You know, I knew my father and Tenzing had been the first to accomplish this climb. And so as I approached the summit of Mount Everest on my first climb way back in 1990, it just started going through my oxygen-deprived, slightly hypoxic mind that this is what it was like for them. This is what it looks like. And so all of the stories really came to life in my mind. But of course, there was that big difference. And the big difference is that they were going into the unknown. Could they do it? Would we stay conscious up there? And because other people had done it, and of course, my father and Tenzing, I knew that it had to be possible for me to get there if I was able to dig deep just the way they did. This year is the 70th anniversary of Hilary and Tenzing's successful climb to the summit of Mount Everest. For Peter, it is a shining example of what can be done by mankind once they put their mind to it. The significance of the 70th anniversary of Everest is really acknowledging that extraordinary achievement that really changed the way we saw what our human potential was. Could we climb Everest? Did we have the technical capability? Would we remain conscious at that incredible altitude? And of course, when Hillary and Tanzing made it, they showed that we humans, not just Hillary and Tanzing, that we humans could do it. So it was one of those very empowering achievements that sort of strengthened our, our understanding of what we were capable of. And that was Peter Hillary ending that report from Mark McMenamin on the first ascent of Everest in 1953. After the break, I'll be speaking to Kean McMahon about his book, The Coffin Ship, Life and Death at Sea During the Great Irish Famine. The infamous coffin ship has long been an emblem of Ungartha Moor, the Great Famine, symbolising the many Irish migrants who sought to escape that catastrophe. Historian Dr. Kean McMahon offers a fresh perspective on an oft-ignored but vital component of the migration experience, the journey itself. In his book, The Coffin Ship, Life and Death at Sea During the Great Irish Famine, he looks in detail at the lived experiences of Irish people aboard emigrant vessels and convict ships, crossing the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans between 1845 and 1855. Earlier, I spoke to Kean about his book and Irish emigration to North America and Australia during this period. Why a book on the coffin ship? I got the idea for this book years and years ago uh, when I was still working on my PhD in Pittsburgh. And I attended a talk by Professor Marcus Redeker, who was writing a book on the slave ship. And he had found the way to tell the story of the social conditions and the experiences of slaves on board a ship in a way that told their story and that made us kind of understand their experiences. And as I walked home from that talk that night, I asked myself, like, what would a book like that on Irish history look like? And suddenly the coffin ship just dawned on me because it was a phrase that I had heard growing up in Dublin 
in the 70s and 80s. It was a part of kind of Irish cultural memory. But I had a feeling that the story of, of emigration during the famine was probably more complicated. I will say that Marcus Redeker's challenge was that he was writing about the slaves who had been silenced by the captains and crews and who left no sources behind. I knew from my own work that there were lots of letters and diaries out there uh, left behind by famine-era immigrants. So I hoovered them all up, spent a few years reading them, and wrote down what I found in the book. And does the phrase coffin ship have legitimacy at the time, during the famine, the immediate post-famine period? Did people write about, did people talk about coffin ships? The phrase coffin ship was a paradox in that as I was beginning my research on this, I would see the phrase used all the times in books and articles written years later by historians, but I rarely found it at the time, like never. I thought this was curious and it started to get me uh, suspicious that perhaps it was possible that the coffin ships was actually a trope, a a phrase, a term that had been employed years later as a way, as remembering the famine, you know. Now, of course, you have to be able to read lots of newspapers to be able to to make an argument like that or to find out the truth. But in the days, nowadays, of digitized newspapers, I could actually uh, quite rapidly find out uh, when the term was popularized. So it is true that the term coffin ship was bouncing around in the British and Irish press in the years before the famine. And it is true that it was used once or twice during the famine itself. But it's not until 1870s when an English parliamentary, an MP uh, named Samuel Plimsoll, is fighting for the rights of working people and sailors in England in the early 1870s. And he seizes upon this phrase, the coffin ship, and he uses it for workers' rights. In Ireland, Irish nationalists first start to adopt it as a way to point out the problems with British, another example of British misgovernment, but then they employ it themselves to remember back and to describe the emigrant ships. So what does preparation to emigrate involve? The first thing I will say is that Unlike many books in the past that have been on emigration during the famine, I wanted this book to be based on the voices of the immigrants themselves. And so I used their letters and diaries, although, of course, I did use newspapers, government reports, landlord papers to fill out the picture. But I wanted it to be from the perspective of the immigrants themselves. And as I was organizing the book, I realized that that perspective of looking at it from the perspective of the immigrant themselves would have to shape the table of contents, right? We have to think of this as a journey. I want to take the reader on a journey. So the first chapter looks at how you prepare to leave. Preparing to leave essentially involves scraping together the money for fares for yourself and for your family to get overseas. And I found that there were a number of strategies that people employed The first and most popular was, of course, remittances from friends and family. Now, it's very difficult to give clear percentages of how many people went by themselves, how many had remittances, how many had landlords, partly because nobody was keeping those statistics, but also, Miles, because they overlapped in many ways. So I'll give you an example. 
There's a 14-year-old girl in the workhouse in Gort, and her mother was in Boston, and her mother sent back the fare for this girl to get from Gort to Boston. But the mother only had the money to pay for the main leg of the journey from Liverpool to Boston. And in the letter, the mother said, do you think you could find enough money in your budget to ju- if you just get her to Liverpool? That's the kind of creativity and ingenuity that gets lost in a lot of stories of immigration. How did that mother know that they would probably pay the rest of the fare, you know? Was it through word of mouth? Was it her own experience? Uh, had she seen people uh, getting help themselves? So the, there's a lot of overlap in terms of how people get the funds, yeah. You mentioned landlords, and obviously there was landlord-assisted emigration where landlords actually paid for their tenants to leave Ireland and, and, and not come back. That wasn't altruistic, though, most of the time, was it? Altruism is probably not a word I would use <laughs> to describe that. But I would say it's also not true that many of these emigrants were going against their will. As you know from your own work as an historian, landlords are tasked with paying poor rates on small, on tiny farms. So they are essentially feeding and clothing people in the workhouse with these poor rates. And so very, very, very small farmers are a cost uh, for landlords. And so enabling those to leave makes sense. But here's the other thing. If your farm is actually decent sized, I think it's four or five pounds valuation, then you're paying your poor rates. And so for some of the better off farmers, it also made sense to pack up and go. I looked at the estate papers of the Wandersford family in Kilkenny in some detail. I was shocked by the mountains of petitions that Wandesford got, which are still on Kildare Street in the National Library today. You can go down and look at them yourself, of farmers saying, I heard that you're thinking of, of paying the fare for people to leave. Is there any chance that I could get in on that? Now, again, there's overlap. So sometimes they'll say, a family member has sent over some money. I just need a little bit extra. You need food. You need a little bit extra food for the ship if you can, because the, you're entitled to a basic minimum, but that basic minimum is barely keep you alive. You need warm clothing. People are preparing by, by getting a coat. But in the petitions, I, I, I'll give you an example. Families had been living on these lands for, for centuries, and they sometimes referred to their ancestry when petitioning. And so there was a great story by one of them, which was the Brennans, who had been farming and mining, actually. This is near Castle Comer. And in his petition, Michael Brennan says, I beg to inform you that myself and my father and my grandfather and my ancestors have all lived on this estate. But being no longer able to maintain my family, which numbers seven, I would wish to emigrate with them to America if you, sir, would be so kind as to give me a passage. Centuries of tenure could end with a free passage abroad. Was there reluctance to accept money from landlords to get off the land? I mean, I know that in the case of the Marquis of Lansdowne in and around Kenmare, the agent there, Trench, would claim or would have claimed that they were clamouring for the assisted emigration money. But if you then look at Strokestown and you look at the, the Mahan 
estate, there was very obvious reluctance to accept money from the landlord to emigrate. So, you know, where's the truth there? Yeah, the truth is that it's very complicated and that it depends on different estates with different tenants, with different relationships with their landlords. And also within a given estate, it it depends on individual families. The Mahan estate is a dark spot in this history. Historian James Donnelly has said, can we really use the word free choice for emigrants who were caught essentially between three options, eviction, emigration, or death? And so by again focusing on the words and ideas of the emigrants themselves, I wanted to bring back their bravery and their humanity and not look at them as lost and and, and isolated and hopeless pawns. I will say that in some of their petitions, uh, some of the prospective emigrants said, I heard that my neighbor is emigrating. Can I have his farm? And if not, can I emigrate? So there's a, a certain amount of negotiation going on. Embarkation, then, is the next part of the process. Did that always involve a trip across the Irish Sea to Liverpool if you were going to the USA or Canada? No, there were ships that left uh, directly from Ireland and the various ports uh, around Ireland, and then Liverpool was the main. Some went, some went from Glasgow, but if you're going to North America, Liverpool is probably the, the port you're passing through, and I think the statistic is something like about 75% of Irish immigrants during this time passed through Liverpool. The thing is, is that as the numbers of immigrants are leaving, smaller ports are being pressed into service and seeing more activity than would be on a usual season or in a usual year. And there's absolutely no way that the government has any way to oversee and regulate that trade. How long typically does it then take to sail from wherever you're sailing from to to Canada or to the United States? An average journey would take anywhere from, if you're very lucky and everything's fantastic, four weeks to six weeks. There are cases, of course, of ships that were out for months, but that is very rare. These ships are essentially passing on maritime highways that have been used for centuries. And so while we think of the Atlantic as this wild, rugged, open, lost space, uh, the sailors and captains know exactly where they are, where they need to go, and how things are going, yeah. We tend to talk a lot about emigration to North America, but we you know, fail to realise or fail to take account of the a lot of emigration or a certain amount of emigration to Australia. Now, was passage to Australia in general involuntary? Were you on a convict ship a la the fields of Athenry? No, most of the people who went to Australia during the famine were people who went as, as free emigrants. Although, of course, there were several thousand who, who went as convicts. One of the things that surprised me uh, when I started researching this was that a, a number of convicts actually committed petty, so nonviolent crimes, on purpose to get a free passage. They recognized that there were ships regularly sailing to Australia. They recognized they didn't have the money to afford a spot on one, so they committed crimes. I stumbled upon this because when I started my research, I thought I would just look at one surgeon's journal just to see if I could learn anything interesting. And in it, the surgeon complained 
that asks you, there's, there's this one, <laughs> this one fellow's got, you know, a terrible cough or whatever. And uh, he hid it from me because he wanted to sail with his brother who's on the same ship. So I thought, oh, two brothers on the same ship. And then I thought, wait a second. So people were lying to get onto the ship. Now, what he, what he said was he, he, he hid the cough. They, they went through a very basic medical screening before getting on the ship. But that cracked the door to, for me to think about people on convict ships. Then I started digging into it. And, of course, unsurprising, once you start looking, I found amazing things. I mean, I, I found... Uh, people who committed crimes on purpose. Uh, there's two sisters. I, I love these two sisters, Joanna and Mary Kelleher, uh, who were in Cork. Their mother was convicted for, again, a petty theft and uh, was sentenced to seven years transportation. The sisters ran out that day and stole two shirts with the intention of getting the same judge while he's there to sentence them and put them on the same ship. The judge says, I have only two shirts, I'll give you 12 months in prison. So the two teenage girls, they're seeing, mum's going to be leaving, you know, you don't leave the next day, like, mum's leaving soon, and we're doing 12, 12 months in, in the Cork jail. These two sisters write a petition to the Lord Lieutenant in Dublin Castle, like, the acme of executive power. And they say, look, here's what happened. <laughs> here's what happened. And they tell him, and they include uh, petitions from their local priests. I know these are great girls. Like they only wanted the free trip, you know. The judge who convicted them said, I had no idea. I'd listen, let them off. So they asked that their sentence be commuted and that they be sent with their mother on the ship as convicts. And the petition, the answer comes back. Yeah, go on the ship with mom, but just go as free settlers. Another woman was in uh, Newtonards. She stole a shirt so she'd get transported. Her child was put into a workhouse and she was put in prison. Another petition. Listen, this has gone all wrong. I was trying to emigrate. Can I get back with my child? Like, can you commute my sentence? Can you? And they said, nah, we'll just send you. We'll just send you down to Australia as an assisted immigrant. And so the convict ships are actually very complicated places when there's up to 20 to 25 to 30 percent of the people on a convict ship are not convicts. And I'm not talking about the crew. I mean, we're taking them for granted. The guards who were guarding, it's not sailors guarding the convicts, it's guards. The guards bring their families. They're not coming back. So in that way, it, it's the ingenuity, it's the, it's the bravery of these folks that's just been lost for years behind the, the cardboard cutout, as I call it, of the coffin ship. Is a 20% fatality rate part of that cardboard cutout, or did around one-fifth of those who made passage across the Atlantic, did they die? The 20% number has been bouncing around actually since the famine years. Uh, Daniel O'Connell's son, John O'Connell, who, as you know, was an, M was an MP, he threw that statistic around in 1850 in Parliament. And the part of the problem is, is that we take 1847 as the only year worth talking about. If you look at the bell curve of Irish migration during the famine, right, from 45, 1845, when the blight, blight first breaks out and people say, okay, I'm getting out of here, 
until 1850. It takes until 1855 until that that bell curve gets back down to pre-famine levels, which is less than 70,000 a year. The top of the bell curve is in 51, 52. So as the blight's ending, and as the famine is quote-unquote over, certainly excess mortality is after 1852. We don't have more deaths by uh, starvation or disease in Ireland. That's when emigration is peaking. And so 1847 is an important year, but it's not by any stretch of the imagination the biggest year. So let's not just say that 1847 is the only year, because it's not. It's one of 10 years, and it's not the biggest in terms of sheer numbers. Okay, but what about 1847? When the British government was accepting, or the government agents in Canada were accepting, they had a fellow, Irish-born, A.C. Buchanan, who's the chief emigration officer in, in Quebec. And his job is to take down how many ships came in, what was that ship, where did it come from, how many people got on it, how many died, how many were born. Yeah. So he's collecting all these statistics, and then he's sending them back to London, and they're being published So we have fantastic records for statistics on deaths primarily to Canada. Now, the statistics on the United States are not good, but there are other historians who've written about it and who say that New York was no... 1847 was not... There was no spike in mortality in deaths to New York in 1847. Cholera hits in 1849. That's a different... But it's it's a bump. It's not a spike. The statistics that I've... Again, using Buchanan, who's like painstakingly, I'm talking ship by ship, it's pages and pages, I I crunched numbers and I found that if we take all of the people who left from Ireland and Liverpool and sailed to Canada in 1847, the mortality rate is a little over 10%. So the real answer is closer to 10%. The statistics on mortality are fascinating because it's not a matter of 10% of people on all ships died. It's that some ships were terrible. Some ships weren't very good. And loads of ships were fine. Let's not minimize 11%. That's incredible. I mean, that's that's on par with with slave ships in the 1700s. So I want to be clear on that. I'm not not minimizing the suffering on on those ships. But you do record instances where people, when they get off the ships, they are very, very grateful and they're very thankful to the crew and the captains. Yeah, because it's not well regulated, you have a really different experience on different ships. So some captains, for example, are cruel. They don't give out enough food. And then do you know what they do when they get to Quebec? They sell it. They pocket the cash. They split it with the sailors. There are captains who do that. There are other captains who are very thoughtful and kind. And you're referring to some of these resolutions which were published in newspapers at the time, in which when when emigrants got off the ship, they went down to the local newspaper and said, listen, we want to take out an ad in the paper. And we want to thank our captain and his crew for doing such a great job. What I found fascinating was that in the way as they're describing that gratitude, they're describing it in the context of other emigrants before and after them. They're saying to other emigrants, read this ad, look for this ship captain, he's one of the good ones. And as such, emigrants on these ships are recognizing themselves as part of something bigger. 
as part of a broader community. And that's ultimately what I found the book was about. I, th I thought the book was about how people survived at sea, and, and there's loads of that on that. But I really learned it was actually about people recovering relationships after the famine. In conclusion, is the real picture more complex than the narratives of Paddy's Green, Shamrock Shore, the fields of Athenry, thousands are sailing? You'd be hard-pressed to find me uh, speak against anything by the Pogues. I'll start <laughs> with that. Uh, Philip Chevron, amazing job with that song. The answer is yes. But as I said, I didn't pursue these questions because I wanted to minimize the experience. There's a lot of sadness and there's a lot of loss. But I also felt that by reducing emigrant ships to that two-dimensional cardboard cutout image of the coffin ship, what I and others had done inadvertently was to turn the people themselves into two-dimensional cardboard cutouts from the past. I went to school in the 1970s and 80s in Dublin it was smash the H-blocks, it was the hunger strikes, it was, and it was Ethiopia in the famine in 1984. I could see the ways in which the coffin ships was part of a broader conversation, we'll say, about, about things that, that needed to change in Ireland. But as I thought about it more and more, I also realized that we had dehumanized the very people that we cared so much about. And I took on this project as my own humble way to try and bring their voices back and to have their voices heard again for the first time in a long time. Kim McMahon, thank you for talking to us. Thanks very much, Miles. And that was Keen McMahon. His book is called The Coffin Ship, Life and Death at Sea During the Great Irish Famine. It's published by New York University Press. That's all we have time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark McGrath on sound and our researcher, Ian Kennelly. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Logan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.